Aren't you glad to be in God's house worshiping Him today? The Matthew's, uh, Mark's Gospel is where we're at, continuing a series of messages that we've entitled Discovering the Real Jesus. And so I encourage you to take your Bible and follow along as we look at how Mark presents Jesus Christ in this great gospel and about the events in life of Jesus and the encounters of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the discipling of his disciples by him, and great truths that we can learn as we look at the text together. And what he was teaching the disciples and what he's speaking and teaching to us today. In Mark's Gospel, chapter number 8, beginning with verse number 27. Do you have your Bible? I hope that you do. and You'll follow along with me. And he went with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say, Elijah, others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but you, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you're the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began teaching them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Amen. For whoever would save his life, lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with holy angels? Father in heaven, thank you for the truths of this word, and I pray that as we look at the Word of God today, the, this text in the Scripture, that, Father, that we allow your Holy Spirit to speak to us, and we'll be responsive to obey what you have to say to us. I pray that our eyes would not be blinded. I pray that our thoughts would not be held captive by things of this world. But, Lord, in this moment, may we focus on you and hear your voice and obey you. Father, our sins 
call us to your truth. Our sins tear at us. Our sins destroy us. Thank you that you've come to bear the weight of our sin so that we might find healing in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. As we look at the text today, the bulletin, if you're following along with the fill in the blanks, there's an inescapable question that we'll consider. A great confession that is given. A divine revelation of truth. A messianic, a messianic, messianic mission that is explained. He came to suffer for us and to serve us. He refused to live a life of self-promotion, but of sacrifice. There's a great invitation to us to come and follow after him. And there's a sober warning. When you live for yourself, the end is destruction. So let's look at this together today. You know, people who never understand who they are really never really know how to live their lives. You don't know how to live because you really don't know who you are. Their lives are always a reaction to some event or some circumstance. They're not living out of the purpose of who they know themselves to be. It's never lived purposefully, really. And there's confusion in how to live because there's confusion in who we are and our identity. Whenever we began to say that we no longer believe that we're here by a creator who made us by design and purpose, the whole culture has lost its identity. And we don't even know what kind of people we are, who we are. It's brought all kinds of issue of confusion into the minds of our people. Lostness is all about us. But as Christians, so many live their life without understanding who they are and the purpose of their life. Rick Warren wrote a book several years ago, many years ago, 2002, The Purpose Driven Life. It sold a gazillion copies. People wanted to know why they're here for a purpose or design. He said, one of the things in the beginning of one of the chapters, you're, you're not here by mistake. You're not an accident. God has a plan and purpose for your life. Indeed, he does for you and for me. Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew why he came. And Jesus' followers can find their identity and purpose in him. Amen. Notice in chapter 8, verse 27, Jesus moves his disciples. They've been near Bethsaida, near the Sea of Galilee, and now they move 25 miles to the north near Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon rises over 9,500 feet, snow-capped most of the year. It is it's a beautiful region. They are called Caesarea 
Philippi. It was a retreat. It was near the ancient city of Panias. It was for a long time been a place of cultic worship of uh, the panoply of Greek gods. There were niches built into the face cliff there at Caesarea Philippi where people worshipped different gods. It was a beautiful area. It's a lush, it's mountain streams that are flowing together, rich green vegetation. It is flowing. The convergence of multiple streams that become the headwater of the Jordan River. And it's there Jesus takes his disciples away for a few weeks in a retreat setting. And since Panius was this site of Greek and Roman gods and idols, Jesus wants to clarify what is their understanding of who he is and why he came. And in so doing, they understand who they are and what they're to do and how they should live. Look at it with me, first of all, this inescapable question. And in verse number 27, he's with them in this region, and he begins to ask them this question, who do people say that I am? And they respond, well, people say, and these are all pretty good things. I'm sure people said some other things, too. But he said, you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. You're like Elijah that has come back again. Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Indeed, all of these people would have to be raised from the dead for Jesus to be them. And there, it's flattering, but inadequate. But he says, doesn't stop there. But in verse number 29, emphatically, he says, but you, who do you, you, yourselves, you on your part, who do you say that I am? Who do you say with your own words Meaning, who do you believe in your heart, understand and trust? And tell, who do you tell yourself and others that I am? Who is Jesus really to you? Now listen, how you answer that question deep in your heart has a huge impact on your life. What is the conviction of your heart and your soul and your mind Who is Jesus Christ to you? I'm not talking about your words. Words without a conviction is meaningless. Who do you say? Genuine conviction in your heart. Who is Jesus to you? Jesus' identity has somewhat been veiled, but he's revealing himself to them. Remember, Jesus is in the boat with the disciples in chapter number 4. And he falls asleep in the stern of the ship's heads on a pillow. And the winds and waves are tossing the boat all around. And they wake up and up say, Lord, don't you care? We're going to perish in this storm. Jesus speaks. The winds and the waves become silent. <laughs> and they said, who is this? That even the winds and the waves. Obey him. They were wondering, what kind of man is this? Chapter number 6, verse 51. Jesus is walking. The disciples again are out on a boat in the Sea of Galilee. The storm has the boat tossed every which way. 
Jesus is coming to them after spending the night in prayer. Three or four in the morning, he's walking on the waves to them. They think it's a coast, and he cries out, Take courage, don't be afraid. It is I, me. Actually, the word he uses is I am. I am. It's me. He was showing them, teaching them a lesson. Notice they didn't understand the lesson of the loaves and the fishes. In chapter number 8, similarly, we find the disciples are in a boat again. There could be a sermon called Lessons on the Boat. And in chapter number 8, they get in the boat and they realize they've forgotten to bring bread and they're arguing about bread. Jesus is talking to them about beware of the yeast of the, the leaven of the Pharisees and, and they don't get it. They're, they're focused in on physical food. And Jesus questions them. He said, you remember the five loaves? How many people did we feed? 5,000. And how many baskets were left over? 12. Do you remember the 4,000? How many loaves? Seven. How many baskets did we fill up? Seven. How many were fed? 4,000. Do you not understand, boys? But they still hadn't quite got it. But the question here is, who do you say that Jesus is to you? What is the confession of your life about Jesus Christ? Now listen closely to me. Listen. Your behavior and your words must be in agreement. Amen. When what you say and how you live clashes, then the truth of the matter is the confession by means of deeds is the real confession by which we must judge your faith. Amen. Deeds and practice always speak louder and more decisive than words, Amen. William Lane said. You see, Jesus said, not everybody that says, Lord, Lord, enters the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my fathers in heaven. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? So here's the question, who's Jesus to you? Have you confessed Jesus as Lord of your life? Do you believe He is God in the flesh? Do you believe He's Lord? Are you living under His Lordship? Number two, a great confession. Notice in verse number 29, He says, But who do you say that I am? Peter pipes up first, and he said, you're the Christ, Matthew says. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's who you are. You, you alone, are the Christ. I like the translation better here. Thou art the Christ. This definite article, thou, you, and you alone are the Messiah. That's who you are. It's identical linguistically. You 
the Messiah are you and you alone. You and you alone are the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the prophesied one. You're the messianic king. You're all that the prophets long to see. You're the fulfillment and the promises of God. You're the king that will liberate all of Israel. You're God's righteous servant. That's who you are. You're the anointed one, anointed by the oil of the Holy Spirit. You're elected and appointed to the task to set us free, to rule over our lives, to be our king, to defeat our enemies. Hope is found in you and you alone. You will establish your kingly rule and godly rule and bring justice that we long for. You're him. That's who you are. Wow, Peter. What a confession. Amen. I think he was speaking for the rest of the boys. All of a sudden, God, they got it. Who is this that even the winds and the waves? You are the Messiah. <laughs> and so Peter might have wanted to feel proud for a second, but Jesus doesn't let him feel proud for one second. He said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonas, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You didn't figure this out on your own, bud. You're so stupid you couldn't figure it out. But my Father who's in heaven, it's a divine revelation. John chapter 1, verse number 18. New Living Translation says, No one has ever seen God but the unique one who is himself God, near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. My Father has entrusted everything to me, Jesus said. No one knows the Son except the Father and and uh, no one truly knows the Father except the Son and those whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Wow. Peter, you're blessed. But you didn't discover this on your own. I'm revealing it to you. Interesting, in Acts chapter 9, we know the story about Saul of Tarsus. And Saul was eager to kill all of those who were a part of the way. He was breathing threats against the church, persecuting the church, pursuing Christians. He had documents and orders to go all the way to Damascus, to the synagogue, and find Jews that were there and those that were followers of Jesus and to imprison them, to arrest them, and bring them back to Jerusalem and have them under uh, stand judgment and trial and killed. On his way, nearly to Damascus, a bright light and a sound, and he's knocked to his knees. And he hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. He was so blinded. Even though he was a biblical scholar, he was blinded to who Jesus was. But Jesus reveals himself to him. He's born again. His life has changed. Hallelujah. That's what the Lord's still doing today. Amen? Changing lives. Showing himself. 
drawing men to you. My friend, if you've been saved, if you've come to know and embrace Jesus Christ as Lord, it didn't happen because you're smart. It didn't happen because of some method. It happened because God Almighty intervened in your life and helped you to see who Jesus is. He reveals the Father. We've always wondered, what does God look like? What is God really like? And he reveals the Father to him. The veil is lifted and the mask is off. We see how, who God is in Jesus Christ. Amen. Interesting story. I watched it on um, YouTube. And uh, it was a story that happened in the major league. I'm a baseball fan. It was a great story. Lieutenant Colonel Will Adams was away from his family for over two years serving with um, the military. And uh, he had come home, but his family didn't know it. And it was at a Tampa Bay Rays baseball game. And his daughter, Elena, had been chosen, she thought, randomly. It was USO night at the baseball park. And she was chosen to be one of those to throw out the first pitch at a baseball game. And so she had the ball and the glove, and she had some family and friends around her. And she was standing right near the mound, in front of the mound. And she was getting ready to throw the pitch, and out walks a catcher in full catcher uniform and the mask on and his glove. And he, he squats right there behind home plate waiting for her to throw the pitch. And she throws the pitch, and it lands right in front of him. He catches the ball, and she turns and jumps up and down with her friends. And then she turns and looks at the catcher. And the catcher takes off his mask. And it's her daddy. And she runs to daddy as hard and fast as she can, threw her arms around him, and he picked her up, and they hugged and wept together. It's daddy. And that's what Jesus did. He showed us who God is. He showed us. We look at Jesus and we see the love of God. We see the forgiveness of God, the healing of God. We see acceptance in God. We see grace and mercy. That's what God looks like. We see it in the life and the faith of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen? Woo. We have been blessed in Jesus Next, notice the messianic mission. There's not only this revelation, but this mission that Christ has. And notice <clears throat> in verse number 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. This was his mission. The word must here is controlling this sentence. 
powerful. What he's saying to them, he said he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer, must be rejected by the chief priests and scribes, must be killed, and after three days must rise again. He will suffer many things. There was not an understanding that the messianic figure, the king, the anointed one, was identified with the suffering servant and Isaiah. This is the same problem that the disciples had after the resurrection. Remember the boys on the road to Emmaus and how Christ opened up the scripture to them, uh, helping them to understand that the Messiah had to suffer these things because he came first before to establish a kingdom here, not in this world's power, but he came to lose his life so that we might be free to know life and be forgiven. It's the purpose that he has for us. He was planning to die. He voluntarily intended to die. And Peter tries to rebuke him. He used very strong words. It's the same word that Jesus used when he cast out demons to rebuke a demon. And so he's using strong language to Jesus, rebuking him about this. But the Lord rebukes him. Notice he says, get behind me, Satan. He, what he's saying is, I'm not here to take power, but to lose it. I'm here to serve. I'm here to give my life a ransom for many. I didn't come here to seize control, but to lose my life so that you might have life. He came to suffer for us, to bear our sins and our sorrows and make them his very own. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. H has gone to his own way, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He suffered our payment for us. Tim Keller talks about this suffering and the necessity of this suffering. And he said there's three different ways that we could look at this necessary suffering of Jesus. First of all, he says it's a personal necessity. He quotes uh, theologian William Vanstone, who wrote an, an article in a book called The Phenomenology of Love. And he said there's two different kinds of love that we might consider. There's false love, and then there's true love. The aim of false love is to use another person to fulfill your happiness. And then it's often very conditional love. But true love, your aim is to spend yourself and use yourself for the happiness of another. Because the greatest joy in your life is that person's joy. And your affection for them is unconditional. And your love is not about getting your needs met. It's about caring for them. And so there's a vulnerability in that kind of love. You spend everything. You hold nothing back. And you give it all away because you're going to love them like that. But Vanstone said, a real problem is that no one's capable of giving true love. We want it desperately, but we don't give it. 
not true, perfect love. Yet we need it. We grasp, we want, we long for it. We long for someone to love us, but not need us. And who is that person? There's only one that can do that, and that's Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is fully, completely healthy in love himself. He's, he's in communication and love relationship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit in the Trinity. That, and so he can, he's perfect in his love and can be vulnerable in his love and love us. You want to know true love? Run to Jesus and you'll find love like you've never found anywhere in your life. And it's healing love. Amen? He said the second necessary thing about Jesus' death is a legal necessity. He must suffer and die. He said legally when somebody owes you something, there's a debt there. That when maybe somebody injures you, hurts you, breaks something of yours, takes something of yours, there's a cost, there's a debt involved in that. For instance, if somebody comes over the house and they bump into a vase on your coffee table and it falls over in a bus or some trinket or something imported and they say, oh, no, I, I'll pay you. You say, no, 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 it's okay. I forgive you. I, no debt here. Who pays the debt? You do. You pay that debt. If somebody punches you in the nose and it's bleeding, you have a decision to make. Vengeance, retribution, or forgiveness. If you choose to forgive, what's it cost you? It costs you a punch in the nose. You absorb the pain of the one who offended you. Jesus bore our sin in his body on a tree. He came to pay for us the sin debt that was ours, that was rightfully ours. All we like sheep have gone astray. There's none righteous, no, not one. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He paid our sin when he died on Calvary's cross for us. Keller says there's one other it would be cosmic necessity. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. The word for blood, it means your life. A life that is given is now taken away. A life that's spent. The pouring out of blood. The life is in the blood. And so a life, the blood that is spilt by man, shall his blood be spilt. There's a, a rule of law. There's death and life. And Jesus came to give his life so that we could have life. But his death was a righteous death because it was a righteous life. And a righteous life satisfied 
a righteous and holy God, a holy life or a holy God, so unholy men might be made holy through Jesus Christ. This only Jesus could do, the one without sin. So God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our part, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He died willingly and voluntarily for our sins, the just one for the unjust ones, that he might bring us to God. And death was defeated in Jesus Christ. He rose again victoriously over the grave. Death, the dreaded bonds are broken. The enemy, instrument of fear and terrorism over mankind is vanquished. The sting of death is removed. The serpent's defanged. And we have life evermore in Jesus. When we die, we are at home with the Lord. Isn't that good news? Son of man must come. He must suffer. He must die. He must rise again. Amen. But he refused. He came to serve and to suffer for us. But he refused to live for himself. To live in self-promotion. So when Peter begins to rebuke the Lord, it was a very familiar voice. I think it sounds, he says, get behind me what? He called the first pope Satan right there, all right? He said, Peter, look, your voice sounds familiar. I've heard this voice before. Peter, it's your lips moving, but the voice is evil. Because that's exactly what Satan tried to get Jesus to do when he tempted him. To live for himself and not for the mission that God has called him to. Later on in Mark's gospel, chapter 10, verse 45, he says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Amen? The temptation is to live for ourselves, our agenda, and miss out on the purpose of God. Finally, there's this great invitation. Notice in verse 34, he, he summoned the crowd and he said, along with his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his own cross and follow after me. He said, if anyone wants to come after me, anyone wants to know me, to be united with me, identify with me, find your purpose in me, find life in me, come to me. But here's some conditions. Deny yourself. You can't live for your self-agenda and follow me. Secondly, take up your cross. My followers bear crosses. My followers live sacrificially. My followers, followers live redemptively. My followers learn to lay down their life and trust God to raise their life up. My followers, follow me. They live like I lived. Follow me. 
heard a testimony some years ago by an author, a professor, who told a story about his childhood and coming to know Jesus as Savior. His name is Emer Kenner. He's written a book called Unveiling Islam. He grew up in a, a Muslim home near Detroit, Michigan. And his father uh, was a, uh, a Muslim. Their home was a Muslim home. And uh, his name, Emer, means prince. He was in, uh, so they studied the scriptures. They went to the mosque. But as a boy, he was invited to a youth event at a Baptist church. Can you imagine? And somehow his parents allowed him to go, and he went to a youth event at a Baptist church, or maybe he didn't find out, but he, anyway, he went. And then they had a lock-in event, and he went to the lock-in, and he heard people sharing their testimony about Jesus, and somebody witnessing to him about Jesus, and he began again to explore, explore the Bible about Jesus, and there was a youth pastor who began to talk to him about Jesus, pour his life into him about Witnessing to him about Jesus, he came under conviction of the Holy Spirit, and God revealed to him he was lost, and that Islam, Islam was not the way, and that Jesus Christ was the way, the truth, and the life. He repented of sin and trusted Jesus Christ as a Savior, as a teenage boy. When his father found out, he said, you're no longer my son. I no longer will speak to you. You have no place in this house, no place in inheritance, no place in my life. I have a funeral for you today. You are dead to me unless you renounce this. And he said, I cannot. As a teenager, he stood to his father. He said, I cannot. Jesus Christ is my Savior. It came at a cost. By the way, he witnessed also to his brother, Ergen. And Ergen trusted Jesus Christ, his brother, and experienced the same wrath of his father. These two young men, now middle-aged men, given their lives to Jesus and teaching the truth of his word. But he said there's no regret. You can't have regret when you've given your life to the one who gives you life Amen. everlasting. Amen. There's great reward. Notice in this passage of Scripture, he says, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save him. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Is it worth it to follow Jesus? Yes, it is worth it to follow him. There's a warning, though. What is the warning in verse number 36, verse 37? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in glory, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. 
The warning is, if you try to gain the world, hold on to the world, you lose your soul. What will you give in exchange for your soul? He's saying life is found in Jesus. He is our life. And he says, when you find him, but if you reject Jesus, you've rejected life. You may gain all of the world, but you're still lost and your soul's doomed to damnation. But when you know Jesus, you got life. Man, he's saying, come, follow me, find life in me, and I'll give you a purpose and eternity forever. Peter never forgot this conversation. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, he says, we're all come to him as to a living stone, and we become living stones ourselves, and we're being built up into a spiritual house that we make sacrifices to God. We become a part of a community and a part of a temple and a we offer our lives in sacrifice to God. And we're alive. Alive in Jesus. That's who Jesus is, man. You can know love and life. Real life. That's eternal in Jesus. And your life has meaning. You have identity. And you got a purpose to live because you're connected to the one who made you and loves you. Hallelujah. It's only found in Jesus Christ. Amen? Father, I pray that today we'll reflect on all that Jesus is for us, what he's done for us. And who we are in him. In Jesus' name, amen.